All right, good morning, Grace Orange. Get your Bibles ready. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5 today. I'm going to have you stand in just a moment, and we're going to read God's Word. But today, I want you to know, we are looking at the shocking and sudden deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. So it is really, really serious stuff today. And I just want to state the obvious. Shocking things shock us. Shocking things shock us, and, and they often fill us with fear. Just the other day, we hear about what happens in France, right? And we are, we are hearing that this you know, radical, satanically inspired uh, people are murdering on a rampage, and, and it should shock us. Absolutely should shock us, and it's evil, and then we become fearful for our own safety. But then we get to the Bible... And we read in Acts 5 that the sovereign Lord of the universe struck down two people who lied to the Holy Spirit. He purifies his church, first century Jerusalem, and we are shocked. It's like, what? Is that really what happened? And we see uh, God's holiness in this, and, but we fear. We fear that we might be punished as well. How many times I've heard people say, I'm sure glad that God doesn't do what he did in Acts 5 anymore. But we're shocked. We're shocked by evil, and we're shocked by holiness. It's just a different kind of shocked. It's just a different kind of fear. In France, we're shocked and, and in, in dreadful awe of the depths of human depravity and the evil to which mankind will go. With Ananias and Sapphira, we are shocked and, and in awe of the wrath of God, and, and we want mercy. And I want you to see today, I hope you will see today, that this passage isn't just about God's judgment on someone's sin. There is mercy in this passage. There is, there is the beautiful gospel message in this passage as well. We see wrath and we want mercy and we want the beauty of the cross and the, and the gospel message and, and I hope that's what you'll see with me today. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts 5 and stand with me please. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. My prayer is that we would receive what God has for us in his word today for his glory and the good of our, of our hungry souls and for, for our homes that are in need of healing and for Christ's church and, and for a waiting world. So here it is. This is God's word. Verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, 
How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your presence with us and we acknowledge that this story of Ananias and Sapphira is confusing. It is startling. It's difficult to harmonize with the rest of the New Testament. And we have all sorts of questions in our minds. Lord God, we acknowledge that you are always good and always right, always true, always loving, always holy, always just. And that here your justice as well as your mercy are on vivid display. Lord God, I ask that you would have your way with us for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. We have to acknowledge this, that this story of Ananias and Sapphira is confusing It startles us, it shocks us, and it is very difficult to harmonize with the rest of the New Testament. It raises a lot of questions for us. A lot of people would say, hey, this seems harsh. This seems like the punishment doesn't fit the crime here. What's going on? And some will explain it away. Some will say, well, you know, it's been 30 or 40 years at this point when Luke is writing. He's kind of forgetting what really happened. Um, He's kind of embellishing the facts. They didn't really die. Nothing can be further from the truth. And also people will classify God as vindictive and unfair. Nothing can be further than the truth. And let me tell you this, Bible-believing Christians and anyone else who wants to hear this, it, the Bible isn't going anywhere. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of our God stands forever. And this story is true. It stands, and it's going to stand forever, and it is for our instruction. It is for our upbuilding. It is for our for our caution, it is, it, is for us, it is for us to fear God. It is for us to fear God. We know God is always good and right and true and just and holy and loving and merciful and kind. And yes, his justice is on display here. His discipline of his children on display here. Let me mention this too. You're going to read stuff in the Bible doesn't matter how many years you've read the Bible or if you're just starting, you will hear things that are confusing to you. But you can be assured of this. If you've come to faith in Christ by the grace of God alone, you're trusting in Christ's finished work, you, you know he died for your sins and, and you've thrown yourself on God's mercy and you've, you've come to faith in Christ and you're starting to read the Bible and you realize that there are some confusing aspects Let me tell you, um, God's word is inspired. That means it's from him. He spoke it. And God's word is inerrant. It means it's always true. It will always tell you the truth. You can be confident in it. It is infallible. It is always trustworthy. It will never lead you astray. And his word and everything in it, every confusing aspect is perfectly consistent with his character. That's what you need to remember. That everything that might be confusing in his word to us is 
perfectly consistent with his character. You can be sure it really happened here, and it really is a warning to us. I think it's a warning on, on the par of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Go with there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And what you see here, the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, and he's, he's telling the church something very important. Verse 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. And you're thinking, oh, water from a rock and manna from heaven. Well, no, he makes it really clear. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ, pre-incarnate Christ with them in the wilderness. But verse 5 tells us, nevertheless, God with them was not well pleased. In fact, it says with most of them, God was not well pleased. And verse 6 tells us, these things took place. All the things they did, idolatry and, and immorality, all these things took place as examples for us. You read 1 Corinthians 10, you're like, there's an example for us. Don't do this. Don't, don't be an idolater. Don't engage in sexual immorality. Don't put Christ to the test. It says that we might not desire evil as they did. The human heart is inclined to run after evil. We, we search out, we hunt down sin to, to engage in. And, and what this is telling us today, Ananias and Sapphira's story is telling us is don't, don't do what they did. <laughs> That's a, I mean, you can't get more simple than that. Don't do what they did. Don't do that. Well, here's to preaching the tough passages of Scripture. Hip, hip, hooray for that. Uh, seriously, I love expository preaching. You can't escape what comes next in a Bible book. You've got to take what comes next. And some people like to cherry pick their favorite Bible verses, I realize, but I get to preach today one of the most feared passages in all the Bible. And it, you, you come to it trembling, and it's a crazy story. I'm telling you, it's a crazy story. If you know it very well, you're like, what is going on here? And it is a story that strikes fear in your heart. And you might be shaking in your boots. You might want to go, you know, run and hide behind your mommy right now. Uh, I understand. Um, there's swift justice here, and there is severe mercy. There is mercy here. And it's really a beautiful story, actually. You're like, what? It's a beautiful story with a beautiful truth for us today that we need to listen to. It's the story of the sudden and shocking deaths of Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, and it packed a punch back then, and it does today as well. And it's up against the backdrop of the generosity and the unity and the testimony that the early church had. I told you this last week, and if you've been here with us through Acts, you, you, you've seen where we've, where we've come from in Acts. But I want you to take a, um, a moment, press pause for a minute with me, and let's review some of the things of how we got here. How did you get here in Acts chapter 5? And, and just remember this, that the chapter breaks and, and, and verses weren't in the original, okay? And so, so, so Luke is writing a flow, and it's somewhat of an unfortunate chapter break here because really it flows right out of chapter 4. Okay, the flow of thought just goes right through. And, and so you've got the unity, the generosity, and the testimony of the early church, how they were one heart and one soul. And then a great example of Barnabas, and then the negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. 
That's what the illustration is here. So lest you think, well, let's go back to what the early church was like. You know, I asked for volunteers in first and second hours. I said, okay, if we're going to do that, let's get two volunteers. So you're my last shot here. If you want to be like the, the early church, I need two volunteers. Anyone, any takers? No, I didn't think so. I saw that hand, actually. Talk to you afterwards. Shocking deaths, and, but let's just talk about Acts for a moment. How do we get to right here? How do we get to two people dropping dead because they were sinning in church? That's right. They were, they were sinning in church. Acts is a foundational book. It is a transitional history of the first 30 years of the early church, and it is about Christ's continuing work through his witnesses for his sovereign purposes. Acts continues the gospel stories. In fact, Acts is part two of Luke's gospel. In chapter one, very right off the bat, Jesus commissions his, his, his witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. From here, where you are, you can take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, and they're waiting, though, for something. They're waiting for Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit. So they're in the upper room, and they're praying, they're searching the scriptures, they're fellowshipping, and then they, they realize, we've got to replace Judas. So based on God's word, they choose Matthias. You get into chapter 2, and the day of Pentecost comes, and the Holy Spirit falls. Jesus fulfills his promise and empowers them for worship and ongoing witness for the gospel. And they're filled with the Spirit, and they're... <clears throat> Excuse me. They're filled with the Spirit, and then they are um, they're getting some, some uh, opposition about it. Peter stands up, and he preaches. We call it Peter's Pentecostal preaching. He explains the Scriptures. He exalts Christ. He exposes the people's sins very clearly, and then he says, you need to respond. You need to respond. So the day of Pentecost comes, and he's preaching up a storm, and then we see the early church be really committed to Christ and it, it flows out into their devotion to the word and to prayer, to fellowship, which we've seen as caring and sharing community. And they're remembering the cross. They're, they're breaking the bread. They're eating the bread and the cup and remembering Christ's death on their behalf. In chapter three, and you see the healing at the beautiful gate uh, of the temple. So opposition comes and the outcome in chapter 4 Peter starts preaching and he says this there's only one way to be saved there's only one savior his name is Jesus Christ there's no other name by which we must be saved what he did on the cross that's the basis and then we see that the church is very godly as they experience persecution they're getting tons of persecution but guess what tons of people are getting saved you got upwards to 10 to 15,000 people in this church in Jerusalem and they are they are meeting from house to house. They're meeting Solomon's portico. They're going to get kicked out of that. It's good because they're too big for it now. And then we saw last week, end of chapter 4, we saw how unified the church was. How, how they, they were generous, extremely generous with one another. They cared so much. They shared so much. And you see how Christ forms this, this really this eternal community. And, and it's, it's amazing. They're they're not uniform, they're unified. And they're committed to one another's well-being to the point that they share everything they have. And they're growing together in this and they're, they're holding everything lightly. They've got an eternal view of their possessions and you're thinking, this is great. 
They're doing what Titus 3.14 says, engaging good deeds to meet pressing needs. That's how you can meet pressing needs, when you know people well enough and you want to engage in good needs to meet those needs. And they were outdoing each other in showing honor, the best competition around. They were outdoing one another. They're extraordinary in this, and I guess, you know, you take a pause at this and say, wait a minute, I've been exposed to the book of Acts for several weeks now, and maybe this is your first exposure to it, but are you allowing the Holy Spirit to defrost your heart? You know, do you know that the, the, the crazy sharing that was going on is diametrically opposed to our human heart's wiring, which is, I'm taking care of myself. I'm making sure my needs get met. Well, in this church, they're saying, I don't care if my needs get met, I'm meeting yours. I'm going to make sure your needs are met. They're thinking of one another as more important than themselves, as Philippians 2 talks about. So they have this effective testimony for Jesus in the gospel, and the first outflow of that, the positive example we get is of Barnabas. Now, I want to take a moment with Barnabas for, for, for just a, a bit, because we looked at him somewhat last week, but there's something I need to point out to you about his name. Barnabas, you know, means son of encouragement. And when you think that, I don't know if anything like me, I'm thinking the person who gives everyone hugs, they're writing, you know, encouragement notes to everyone, they're slapping everybody on the back, way to go, add a girl, add a boy, you know, keep going, you can do it, and they're kind of cheering everybody on. The problem is Barnabas is probably derived from an Aramaic expression, bar nabi, which is son of, get this, prophet, son of a prophet. So a better translation than son of encouragement is son of exhortation. And you might say, well, aren't they the same? No, they're not. They're not. The idea is, exhortation is that they are, the apostles gave them the name. And the apostles are recognizing that this man is gifted in preaching the word of God and being a missionary. This is what Barnabas did in the church. He became the teacher in the church in Antioch. You see that in chapter 13. He's a missionary to his homeland of Cyprus and into Galatia with Paul. So we tend to think of him as the guy who is you know, going around giving words of encouragement, and he is, but he's doing it through preaching the word. He's handling the word accurately, and so the apostles are saying, you're really good at this. You're known for this. Barnabas, son of exhortation. He's preaching the gospel. Now that brings us to today... And the second illustration, which is a negative one. A negative one, and it's Ananias and Sapphira. Husband-wife team. And here's what's going to happen. We're going from unity in the church, extreme unity, to absolute autonomy. We're going to do our own thing. We're going from generosity to greediness. And we're going from having an awesome testimony to seeing a terrible tragedy in the church. That's where we're going with this. You get to Ananias and Sapphira. Very, they're in the very first Christian church ever, located in Jerusalem. Now the church got off to a great start, and persecution was coming from the outside. But God's working miracles. The gospel's prevailing. The church is growing. In the midst of the persecution, the church is growing. And seemingly out of nowhere comes this, this hurricane from inside. It's like a seismic shift happens in the church, and it disrupts the unity, the generosity, and the testimony of the church. Two members of the community, husband and wife, they sin and they face divine retribution in form of sudden death. They died suddenly. Now, 
it isn't just them. Satan's in the mix. You notice that Satan filled Peter. Uh, Peter said, Satan has filled your heart, Ananias. So Satan is back from a brief hiatus after the cross, and he's back to his old ways, attempting to mess with what God is now doing in this first church. So verse 1 tells us there's a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira who sold a piece of property. So they had some kind of means, some kind of money, and his wife knew about this, and he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Now keep in mind that phrase, kept back. Just stick that in the back of your mind for just a moment. He brings only a part of it and lays it at the apostles' feet. That's what they did. They basically said, Christ is our authority. You, you use this however you want. They weren't designating their giving. Peter says in verse 3, though, Ananias. So Peter has this, 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 this knowledge from the Holy Spirit. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So there's that phrase again, keep back. Now here's the deal. Barnabas gave as a spirit-filled Christian. Ananias was giving satanically inspired giving. How do we know this? Because it says Satan filled his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now most people assume, and rightly so, that Ananias and his wife were true believers in Christ. It's very possible, but it is not clear-cut. Not clear-cut. One reason why it's not clear-cut is because verse 1, the word man, that word man, it's repeatedly used in the book of Acts to introduce someone who is not a believer when they're introduced. We see it here. We see it uh, back in chapter 3, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 14. So it is possible that Ananias and Sapphira are merely sympathizers. They think it's pretty cool, but they're not fully with them because they don't know Christ. That's possible. Here's what we do know. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Only God knows those who belong to him. Only God knows. God knows his own, and so his own, the professing believers need to, need to uh, um, abstain from evil. That's what it says. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord, if you profess to be a believer, abstain from wickedness, abstain from evil. Now, there is a good case to be made that they are believers because they were included in the congregation of those who believed. They were included in the number. They were involved with the Holy Spirit. They're, they're lying to the Holy Spirit. In fact, Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart? He wouldn't say that to an unbeliever. He'd basically say, Satan has your whole heart. It, it's kind of like um, in Matthew chapter 16 when, when Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because Peter's like, oh, you're not going to go to the cross, Jesus. No, that's not going to happen to you. And, and Jesus says to Peter, get, get behind me, Satan. That's not good. You're wrong. That doesn't come from me. Another thing we see is that if, if they were not believers, what would this, how would this teach a lesson about sin to the church? This is a lesson about sin that's for the church. And Satan cannot indwell a believer, but they, he can harass believers. This is what you're seeing here. He's personally involved with, with Ananias here. And the last thing we know is that death can be a divine discipline for a believer. Now, you don't want to go connecting the dots on that one, okay? But you just need to know death can be a divine, divine discipline for a believer. Now, why did this happen? On a larger scale, it happened so that the church would be warned against sinning like this. It would be like a scar. 
You have scars, right? We could do like a scar competition, like whose story about their scar is the best. But I, every scar I've got on my body, I learned something from it, and I don't do that anymore. For example, uh, this finger here has seven stitches, and I re- here's what I learned from this back in like 1980 as a high school senior. Don't cut roast beef with a knife and do it towards your hand and slice your hand open. I don't do that anymore. Okay? I got another scar right here on this finger, and what I learned from that is don't cut cardboard with a, with a razor blade right towards your hand. I've got 18 stitches inside my right thigh. You know what I learned from that? When you're running in a track race in high school, be really careful and be wary of the guys wearing spikes because they might step on you and hurt you. And the last one I'll give you, right here inside the eyebrow, I, um, I learned this when I was like in the third grade, and it's this. When you're running and playing chase at school, don't run into the moving, swinging metal gate. Okay, I learned a lesson. I don't do that anymore. And the church is going to learn a lesson here. They're going to say, we don't want to do that. You might say, hey, how come this doesn't happen more often? Does it really need to happen more than once? No, it's here forever. You got the example, here forever. Now let's look at that little phrase that I told you to stick in the back of your head. Keep back. The kept back idea. It, it highlights something that's very similar to something in the Old Testament. In, in Joshua chapter 6 and 7, the sin of Achan in the book of Joshua. Joshua told the people, this is after Jericho was overthrown, and told the people of Israel, don't take any of the loot for yourself. Don't take any of the treasure for yourself. It's all devoted to God. It's all dedicated to him. What did Achan do? Took some of the loot for himself. He took some of the devoted stuff and hid it in his tent. Guess what he got for that? Instant death, yes. Uh, Very similar to Ananias and Sapphira. So here's Ananias keeping back what he's saying has been devoted to God. And he lies about it. In fact, Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You think you're just lying to us, but you lied to the Holy Spirit. They misrepresented the gift as the entire sale price. Looks like they wanted special recognition. Looks like they wanted a nickname like Barnabas got. Hey, if we give a good gift like this, we're going to look like Barnabas. They're going to like us a lot. They deceive the church. They, they lie to God. God's judgment comes. They die. Boom. Dead. Wow. Someone said to me this week, think of all the other people that didn't get whacked. Oh, yeah, we're all sitting here going, Phew, I've done way worse. Yeah, I've done way worse. So have you. Uh, this is like, wow, I'm glad God doesn't do this all the time or I'd be toast. But we learn something here. Peter starts asking Ananias all these questions. Six questions, and they unveil his evil. Why, 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 why? That's, they're all why questions. Why did you allow Satan to fill your heart? Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Why did you put some of, the si- some of the money aside for yourself? Why did you not see that you had the right of ownership over this? Why did you not realize you, you controlled the use of the proceeds? And why in the world would you put in your heart such an idea and then do it? Proverbs 26, 28 tells us a lying tongue hates those it hurts. God hates lying. It's an abomination to him. Proverbs 6 tells us, verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. If you want to make a list, here it is. Haughty eyes, arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, 
hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, false witness who pours out lies, and the person who stirs up conflict in the community. Well, Ananias and Sapphira committed all of those but one. The only one they didn't do was shed innocent blood. But they were guilty and they died. Let me make a note about personal property. You want to know about this. You're going to say, well, wait, 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 wait. Were they supposed to give everything? No, this was a voluntary generosity based on their love for Christ and his church. So when you talk about personal property, here's the general rule. It's very simple. Do whatever you want with whatever God's blessed you with. Love God and do as you please. Now, don't do anything immoral or illegal with it. Do any good thing you want with what God has blessed you with. That's the principle. The money was at their own disposal. Uh, They were not obligated to give any or all or part of it. Um, It was a spirit-led voluntary expression of love for one another that was supposed to be taking place. Now, why was this lie especially bad? Because it was, it was happening in such close proximity to the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. It's interesting that, that you got you know, Adam and Eve messing up Eden with sin. Now you've got Ananias and Sapphira messing up the church with sin. So verse 5, Ananias heard these words. He fell down and died. And verse 5 tells us, great fear came on all who heard it. Everyone was, was afraid of it. But verse 6 tells us they wrapped him up and buried him right away. In those days, that's what you did. You got buried the same day you died. One person told me this week, refrigeration has not been our friend in, in, in getting closure when people have died. Because we go on and on sometimes, and it's very hard for us. It, it, it weighs on us. In that day, you get buried the same day you die. But here's the deal. Where it says that they, that they rose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him, those words and the way they're structured point to God's judgment on Ananias. It's not, oh, he had a heart attack because he had a stressful situation. This was God's direct judgment. The, a very unique verb is being used here. It's the same one used for Herod Agrippa, uh, his death, when he wouldn't give glory to God, and, he, and God struck him down, and he died. And guess what? He was eaten by worms. Eaten by worms. So it was the custom to bury you the same day, but there was no ceremony, no mourning. And, and get this, this is where it gets really weird. Verse seven, his wife didn't know he died, meaning she didn't go to his funeral. So you're thinking that maybe when you get to verse eight, Peter's gonna say, Sapphira, take a seat, we need to talk. Doesn't happen. He questions her. But this is mercy. This is merciful. He's giving her a chance to repent, to come clean on the lie. So he says, Sapphira, tell me, did you sell the property for this amount? Here's her opportunity. And she says, yes, that was the amount. And so verse nine, Peter says, you've agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test. So the deception went beyond lying, but they were testing God. Have you ever heard of anyone, like a group of people, way back when, that would always be testing God, even after he'd delivered them again and again and again? Hint, hint, the people of Israel, 
After God had, had set them free from slavery in Egypt, what did they do all the time? Test him over and over and over again. So Peter says, those who buried your husband are going to bury you. So here's how she finds out about her husband's death. By the way, your husband died and you're going to die right now too. That's it. So verse 10, she dies immediately. They bury her right beside her husband. And verse 11 tells us, great fear came upon the church, but not just upon the church. Everyone who heard this was afraid. We're not going to explain this away and say, well, they were just nervous. They were fearing God. Do you know it's good for you to fear God? If you don't fear God, you are not going to think about how awesome and great and holy and other he is. If you don't fear God, you're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to exaggerate how important you are. And you're going to downplay how important he is. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did. They, they supersized themselves. They downsized God. They were not in fear of God. It says here that great fear came upon the whole church. And the first time that word church, ecclesia, is used for the community of Christians in the book of Acts in this context, right here. First time you see ecclesia in, in Acts. Because God is putting the church on notice. You ever been put on notice? Like, watch out. If you don't, if you don't shape up, this is going to happen. What, shape up or ship out? 1 Timothy 5 says this, As for those who persist in sin... Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. That's why this only happened to happen once. Only had to happen one time. We're reading it right here today. It happened a long time ago. It would keep others from sinning in the church and those outside the church would count the cost of what it meant to hang out with this group of people. You know, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, hey, here's a great evangelistic uh, plea come to Christ, you might be arrested for it. Here's another one. Come to Christ, you might die for it. What do you think? Is it going to work? It's not going to work, is it? Now, you come to Christ, you're supposed to die to yourself. They, they lost their life. Okay? They lost their life, and if they're believers, it was so that their souls would be saved. God wants a pure church. We're all sitting here today, and we're like, we don't feel very pure. And by the way, the, the purest feeling among us is arrogant. So, you know, it's a lose-lose proposition for you there on the, uh, the uh, feeling humble thing. He's going to take drastic steps to achieve that here, and everyone saw it. Peter, when he's writing, says this, 1 Peter 4, 17, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's like Romans 11. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Uh, Hebrews tells us it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is a message here for the church. The whole church. There is a message here to the world, to everyone who, could, who would hear about this. And it is a terrifying message. It is a sobering message. It is a fear-inducing message. 
and fear of God is good for the church. This event was good for the church. Very good for the church. God was not going to let his, his, his new, brand new baby church get messed up by this sin. And it teaches us something. It teaches us something about God. It teaches us something about ourselves. But it also teaches us something about Satan. See, Ananias and Sapphira were, were playing into Satan's schemes. That's what they were doing. This is his first appearance after the cross, and he's always a liar and always a deceiver. We have to grasp this. Satan is not your friend. Satan hates you. Satan does not want you to be unified with other Christians. Satan does not want you to be generous with your stuff. Satan does not want you to have a good testimony out in the world for the gospel. Stop playing with Satan. Stop playing into his schemes. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. See, God loves his people enough to discipline him, them. He loves us enough to discipline us. He loves you enough to discipline you for your good. Hebrews 12 tells us all about it. It's, it's for your good so that you would share his holiness. So a married couple marred the first Eden with sin. A married couple now mars the first church with sin. And Satan, who's the liar and deceiver, is, is loving every minute of it. Think about what he has done. Even just go to the Gospels, where he tried to derail, he never could, but he tried to derail Jesus at the outset of his ministry, tempting him in the desert. He influenced Judas to betray Jesus. He, he enticed Peter to deny Jesus. And he is going to continue his efforts against Christ and his church until Christ comes again, because Satan is dangerous and he's on the loose. And he disguises himself even as, as what? An angel of light. 1 Peter 5, 8 verse, says, be sober and alert. Your adversary, that's right, your adversary, your enemy, the one who hates you, is, is prowling around like a roaring lion. He wants to stun you. He wants you to freeze in your tracks. He wants you to go down a road that you know you shouldn't go, and he wants to get you away from the herd, get you away from the body, so that you're off by yourself, and in a moment of weakness, you do the thing that you know you shouldn't do. And guess what? Amongst the body of Christ, we all know this. It's happening all the time. In all of our lives, we're choosing things that we shouldn't choose. Ephesians 6 tells us, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Here we are sitting here today, sinners every one of us. If you're a Christian, you're covered by the blood of Christ. Your sins were paid for at the cross. Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. He has broken the chains that once bound you. You know, Jesus, when he came into the temple, into the synagogue, in Luke chapter four, he, he, uh, he was handed the scroll and it was Isaiah. And he was reading Isaiah 61.1. The Lord has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives. People told Jesus, John chapter 8, told him, hey, you know what? We've never been slaves to anybody. He's like, really? You're a slave to sin. And he says, if the, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Meaning you will be wonderfully, vividly free. And guess what we do? We look around on the ground and we hunt up all the pieces of the broken chains and put them back together and wrap ourselves up in them. 
There are so many Christians that are not free. We live enslaved to sin when we have been freed from sin. And so the, the thing we've got to do is examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 12 tells us. It tells us, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you realize Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Like, don't trust yourself. Don't trust your own judgment here. Ask your friends. Ask your family. Am I on track with Jesus? great fear great fear why is it this, this, hounds, this, this, this hounds me all the time this, this haunts me all the time why is it that the church is often way better at sinning than the world we got the gospel and we become so sneaky at sinning we'll hide it pornography, addictions, divorce fractured relationships, unforgiveness gossip, slander, gluttony greediness, you name it you name it and we have the gospel we're playing into Satan's schemes and it's so easy for us to treat sinful behavior lightly and explain it away and hide it and repackage it and ignore it and overlook it and re-explain it and not deal with it appropriately and have misplaced grace that's when we say, well, we're just going to be gracious, when really it means I don't want to deal with that. You know, um, I, I guess we shouldn't forget that we are accountable before a holy God who loved us so much that he sent his son to die in our place, the most excruciating of deaths, so that we might live. I don't know about you, but if you consider yourself a repentant sinner who is trusting in the mercy and grace of God, then I think the only reply for us would be, I'm not clean. But I'm cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. I'm clean in Christ because the blood of Christ continually cleanses me from all sin. First John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. That you're free in Christ, that Christ broke your chains. The, the, the chains were broken. Don't wrap yourself up in them again. The Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit does? You know what the Holy Spirit's like? This passage tells us two very important things about the Holy Spirit. That number one, the Holy Spirit is personal. You can lie to the Holy Spirit. And number two, the, 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 the Holy Spirit is present. Present with the church. And we see the wrath of God, really. We see the judgment of God, the, the discipline of God, and, and we, don't we all want to just cry out for mercy? You know, you play that game where you, you know, can I pull somebody's hand back or put them in a, you know, grab their arm and twist it or, you know, put them in a headlock and you want them to cry mercy. We just take one look at this, at this, at this story and we want mercy, but what we see is wrath and judgment and discipline. And you could say, well, didn't the blood cover this sin? They're believers. Didn't the blood cover the sin? Yes, it did. But this was the consequence, earthly consequence of their sin, and they were saved, as the Bible tells us, as through fire. And you would have to put this in the category of destruction of the flesh to save the soul category. And you could also say this, but wait, wait, wait. With all the evil going on in the world right now, isn't this getting a little picky about, like, lying? Isn't this getting a little picky here? Shouldn't we take up arms and go off and fight our oppressors? Shouldn't we all get on a plane to... Paris and make things right and I gotta tell you 
Every one of us wants, wants justice for somebody else. But we want mercy for ourselves. I said that many times before. You see, God's word stands no matter what's going on in the world. We're to obey God no matter what's going on in the world. You say, but why does evil flourish in the world? Because Satan is on the loose and he's running amok. And because the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And so you, you, you should, we should weep for France. We should weep for every single person who has oppressed by evil. And we should pray that God will unleash his furious wrath against all evil, right? But there's a reason why he's not doing it right this moment. It's because he is patient. He is merciful. He is forbearing. There will come a day. There will come a day when Christ will return in, in vengeance on his adversaries and punish all evil. And we know at the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied so that every believer who, who throws themselves upon the mercy of God receives forgiveness of sins. There is a severe mercy here in this passage. A seriously severe mercy to point us to God's provision of the only Savior. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Everything will be laid bare. In fact, right now, nothing is hidden from God's sight. Every sin exposed. Do you want to hear an ironic twist? Ananias. His name means God is merciful. Ananias' name, who got judgment instantly, his name is God is merciful. Is that not an ironic twist? Here's the warning to Christians. If you lie and deceive, you're lying to God and playing into Satan's schemes. But there is beautiful grace because guess what? Sapphira's name means beauty. It means beauty. And, and what happened to them is good for the church. And there is a reason why it only happened once. This scar will remain. And we will remember this scar. And we will, we will learn from this scar. And God will justly repay evildoers in his time. We don't need to go fly off to France right now. Someone else might need to, though. But not us. Because I don't think we're authorized. But God wants his church to mercifully, graciously fear him. He is weeding out the weeds and cutting out the cancer and beautifully leading people to repentance. Right? This might be you today. I say, well, this is why God isn't, isn't just leveling the whole earth because I need to repent. Because I need to repent of my sins and believe in the Lord Jesus. This is a very vivid, vivid reminder of the kindness and severity of God. It's a consuming fire. And there's good fear. Take the good fear. As I close, let me just say this. If every one of your sins every one of my sins was exposed to the church I'd want to die you'd want to die but every one of our sins was laid on Christ every one of our sins was laid on Christ and he, he died for us Lord God thank you that that happened and thank you Lord to remind us that the first church wasn't perfect and that Satan attacks and exploits are the weak spots and we are in a war, an outright war against all that is good and right and true. Lord, thank you for reminding us that sin is like a cancer. It eats like rust. And thank you for the memory and the reminder every day that we have a perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus. 
Thank you that there's a day coming when you, Lord Jesus, will appear. But until then, Lord, may we be on our guard. May we be watchful and ready and aware. And may, may we rejoice in the blood of Christ that cleanses us from our sin. Thank you for your beautiful mercy. Amen.